Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 17, and we're on page 877 in the chair Bibles. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, that, so that she will not beat me down with her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church family. Welcome if you're new or visiting this morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. In June 2018... 12 young soccer players and their coach were trapped in an elaborate cave system in Thailand. Shortly after entering the caves to explore, heavy rainfall began to, to fall and flooded the cave, making their escape impossible. And efforts to locate the group were hampered by rising water levels and strong currents within the cave system, and the team was out of contact with the outside world for over a week. Many of you have probably seen the documentary and the movie made about this ordeal. Eventually, two world-renowned British divers were brought in to conduct a harrowing rescue of the boys. The divers made their way to where the team was to assess the rescue options and to to bring them some food and water to, to keep them alive. But it was determined that the divers would have to go back out, get extra air tanks, sedation medicine, and they would sedate each player and bring them out one by one. Imagine what those players must have felt like when the, when the rescue divers arrived. Elation, hope, promise, and then what it might have felt like when those rescuers began to swim away, leaving the boys alone in the cold, dark, wet cave again. This is a bit of what I think the disciples 
must have felt like in Luke 17, the text we looked at last week. The Messiah had shown up. In their minds, the conquering king had arrived. He was going to to enact and, and bring swift justice to their enemies. But then Jesus told them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. The kingdom of God is not going to operate in ways that you think. Essentially, like the British divers, Jesus says, rescue is coming, but you have to wait. There are preparations that are being made. There's a a plan that's having to be carried through. It's coming, but not yet. Waiting is hard, isn't it? We might not be trapped in a cave hundreds of feet below the surface of the earth waiting to be rescued, but there is a very real sense we're awaiting our own rescue, isn't there? We're desperate for the complete, full, and final reign and rule of Jesus to commence, aren't we? We find ourselves in the same place as the disciples. If you're a Christian, you've, you've seen Jesus through the pages of Scripture, through his community of believers and his natural creation. We've experienced his grace and mercy. We've been adopted as sons and daughters, and yet we're living in the already and not yet of his kingdom. We're waiting for the full and final consummation of Jesus' perfect kingdom. Yet as we wait, we do so in a world that is sinful, chaotic, and I think if we're honest this morning, downright hard at times, don't we? How do we not lose heart? How do we not get jaded and cynical? How do we not get discouraged and just go through the motions of this thing we call following Jesus? At the realization that we read about last week, how would the disciples not be discouraged and lose heart? I wonder what those divers told that team just before they left. What'd they tell them to encourage them to keep waiting? What'd they promise them to not give up hope, to not throw in the towel, to to not lose heart? What encouragement did those men give that team to persevere for another 10 days? We don't know what was said in that cave, but we do know what Jesus said to his followers to encourage them to persevere. That's exactly what we're going to explore in our text this morning. Luke 18, 1 through 17 is a continuation of Jesus' teaching on his end-time promise to inaugurate and consummate his full and final kingdom. In light of what he just taught the disciples in chapter 17, he, he offers powerful words of encouragement and warning to help his disciples then and us now persevere as we wait for the coming of King Jesus. And so as we await Jesus' full and final kingdom consummation, we will persevere as we recognize Jesus invites us into prayerful dependence on him. We're going to see Jesus' encouragement to persevere in three parts today. Number one, verses one through eight, we're going to see that he invites us and to recognize that we pray to a God who is just and compassionate. Number two, we pray to a God who justifies us, verses 9 through 14. 
And then lastly, number three, God's kingdom belongs to those who receive it like a child. Our final verses, 15 through 17. So before we jump into the text, pray with me. Father, we thank you that that you do not leave us nor forsake us. That your coming again is delayed. It it seems like a, a long while from our perspective. It's in your perfect timing. That you have more to do. More grace to give. More mercy to extend. More souls to save. And so thank you that you don't leave us alone. You've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. Would they help us persevere? And would we see you today with gospel clarity? In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 18, verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. This first parable is a continuation of Jesus' end-time teaching in chapter 17. It's an encouragement in how to live in the already and not yet of Jesus' kingdom, particularly in the last days which we're in and have been since Jesus' ascension to heaven. Remember, as last week, as Jesus told the disciples that this full and final kingdom would not come in ways that they expected, nor would it come in the time frame that they had hoped, He gave them these Old Testament warnings. He he likened the waiting of the days to Noah and to the days of Lot. And then he, he gave this stark warning in Luke 17, 32. He said, remember Lot's wife. As you wait, remember Lot's wife. And as we know from Scripture, Lot's wife was the one who, when fleeing God's judgment, turned back towards Sodom. She did not trust God in his deliverance and and turned back to her own desire, and it cost her everything. And so Jesus recognizes the difficulty in waiting. He recognizes the temptation to to lose heart, to, to turn away from God, to go back on all that we've experienced in him. And so he gives this parable to encourage and strengthen his disciples. And friends, we need this encouragement as much as they did then. We are waiting for Jesus' kingdom in the exact same way. In the midst of a broken, chaotic world, one that tells us to turn our back on God. One that tells us to go our own way. And so this parable is for us this morning. Jesus is telling us this parable to the effect that we ought always to pray and not lose heart also. Verse 2, look at the parable with me. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, 
will he find faith on the earth? So we have this parable that, that Jesus says is given to encourage his people to always pray and not lose heart. And, and in it, we're meant to see the heart of the one we pray to. This parable zeroes in on the, the just compassion of God towards his people. As waiting is difficult, as persevering in this life feels like monotony, as the, as the pressure of the world presses in, we can take heart knowing we pray to a God who is just and compassionate. The telling of this parable is such a beautiful example of Jesus carrying grace for his people. As the king who will one day usher in his full and final kingdom, this parable is a demonstration of his care. We ought to read it as if he were a friend who comes down to our level, who, who takes our face in his hands, who looks us in the eye and says, though you wait, I will always be with you. So we see in this parable a character. She's, she's a widow. She's weak. She's poor. And she had no husband to protect her. No one to go to bat for her. No one she could count on. And we're meant to sympathize with this widow. See, as we recognize the pain of this world, as, as we recognize that though we experience God's kingdom in some ways, often they're just a shadow of what we'll be, we know this world is not the way it's supposed to be, and this widow represents who we are in this world. We need someone to act justly and compassionately on our behalf. And so something has happened in the life of this widow that's caused her to have an adversary. Someone has done her wrong, and she needs justice. She's desperate for justice. And so she does the only thing she can. She goes to the judge of her city, and she begs for his help. The parable tells us that the widow kept coming. She persevered in her pleas to the judge. And for a while, he refused to help. He refused to give her justice. But eventually, after countless summons to the judge, he finally relents, not out of compassion, but to ward off the widow's incessant claims. Now, the teaching of this parable is not that if, like the widow, you pester God long enough, like she did the judge, he will finally answer your prayer. In fact, that's contradictory to other teachings of the Bible on prayer. In fact, in Luke 12, 32, we just saw it a couple months ago. It says, it is your father's good pleasure. It means he delights to give you the kingdom. See, the teaching of this parable is that God and the judge are completely opposite. It's why we can pray and not lose heart. It's why we can endure as we're prayerfully dependent on God, who is the complete opposite of this unjust judge. There are two things we know about this judge that stand in complete opposition to what God is like, and it's, it's these two qualities that were the barriers to the judge helping the widow. It says two times, look at it, in verses 2 and 4, 
that the judge did not fear God, nor did he respect man. It was these two character flaws that that led the unjust judge to deal harshly with the widow until he eventually, reluctantly, did enough to get her off his back. First, he did not fear God. A fear of God would cause the judge to act justly on behalf of the widow. A right reverence and understanding of God and his law would have necessitated that the judge stand in the gap for the widow who was being mistreated by this adversary. But the judge, according even to himself, did not fear God. Therefore, if it was the fear of God that would compel this judge to act justly, God, who is completely opposite of this judge, can be trusted to fully act in complete, perfect justice. That means, friends, when we face bitter, unfair adversaries in this life, and we will, we can come to our God who is just and promises in verse 7 to give justice to his elect or to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night. When we're desperate in this life, when the, the waiting becomes unbearable, when sin, our own and that of the world, presses in around us, we have a just judge who invites us to keep coming, to persist in prayer that we might not lose heart in this life. The second thing that we know about the judge is that he did not respect or have regard for man. That means he had no compassion. He didn't know the widow, therefore he had no compassion for her. He had no respect or regard for those he did not know. We can be assured if the widow was the judge's mother or sister, he would have given her justice right away. But this judge has no respect or regard for man. And so we have to ask as we read the parable, is this how God deals with us? By no means. Again, this parable is meant to shine a light on the direct contact contrast between the unjust judge and God. Where the judge has no regard for man, Jesus Christ has deep compassion for his people. Matthew 9.36 says that when Jesus saw people, he had compassion for them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He saw them like this widow and he had compassion. This means that as we endure the waiting of his kingdom, Jesus is not far off. He's not distant or cold or aloof to those who cry out to him like the judge was. Again, it says in verse 7, he will give justice to the elect, to his own people. He hears. He has compassion. He gives justice to those who are his, to those he has saved, to those he has adopted as sons and daughters. And so if God is for us, the Apostle Paul says, who can possibly be against us? That's what this widow was desperate for, and it's what you and I have as we await Jesus' full and final kingdom. If an unjust judge can be moved by a widow's persistent dependence, how much more will God, who is perfectly just, give justice 
to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night. We're invited to persist in prayer to this just and compassionate God who who will never tire of hearing from us. Listen to this. He will never tire of answering your prayer. He will never tire of giving justice to his. And friends, doesn't that compel us to persist and persevere? This character of God we see that is so different than the unjust judge should motivate us to persist in prayer, especially when, like the widow, we're desperate for justice. And then this first parable ends by Jesus asking, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is the link to the end time teachings of chapter 17. When Jesus comes to consummate his full and final kingdom, will he find disciples who have persevered? Will he find followers who have endured by continually praying to the just, compassionate God they serve? Now I have to admit, it seems odd to think that Jesus' antidote to not turning back like Lot's wife to not throwing in the towel as we wait for Jesus is simply praying to God more. But I think the dissonance comes in our view of prayer, or at least it has for me this week as I've been studying this. See, what what Jesus is inviting us into is he says we ought always to pray is, is not simply coming to God and making requests. Jesus instructs the disciples to pray without ceasing because as they endure the waiting, It's relationship and intimacy and communion with God through prayer that will keep them engaged. It's that type of prayer that will keep our hearts in the wait. For Jesus, prayer was the lifeline between he and the Father, and so it should be for us. As you read the Gospels, you get this sense that a a lack of prayer for Jesus would be like a lack of oxygen. He was as dependent on God through prayer as he was the very air he needed to breathe. And it's prayer that keeps our hearts alive to God in the midst of a noisy, distracting world. Communing with this just, compassionate king, sharing our fears, extolling him in praise, crying out for justice, and persisting in prayer keeps our hearts devoted to him. But here's the reality. For a lot of us, prayer is about asking God to do certain things, to change certain things, or to give us certain things, which in and of themselves is just fine. That's part of prayer. But more importantly, prayer is communing with God in such a way that his spirit and his word don't necessarily start to change our circumstances. They start to change us. They form our hearts and minds. They they form our motives and will to what he desires. And over time, this is why continual prayer as Jesus invites us to is so important. Over time, we become more and more like him and more and more dependent upon him. 
But we need to be honest with each other this morning. Prayer can be difficult, can't it? In fact, the number one spiritual discipline that every single survey and every single study ever done identifies people say that they need to grow in most is always prayer. And so how do we grow in prayer? How do we get better at prayer if it's so vital and not losing heart as we wait for Jesus' return? I want to give us just a couple really practical ideas this morning. First, I would encourage you to give yourself to reading about prayer. As we read and study about prayer, it becomes a stimulus toward a life of prayer. And there are a lot of really great books on prayer, but but one of my all-time favorites, it's a, a classic on prayer that's been extremely valuable in the life of the church, is this little book. It's only 128 pages long. It's called Power Through Prayer by E.M. Bounds. I would encourage you to get this on Amazon. It's cheap. It's less than $10. And let the reflections on prayer through people throughout church history motivate your own prayer life. And then second, I would encourage you to make some kind of committed plan to pray and stick to it. Prayer's not something we ever do on accident. It's not our natural first language. It's something we have to give ourselves to. And so I would encourage you, make a plan. Make it a good plan and stick to the plan. The way I plan for prayer is I use an app called PrayerMate. It's a free app. You can download it on any of your app stores. And it lets you create prayer cards. And I have all these different sets of prayer cards in this app that that let me pray scripture, pray for my family, pray for our church and our pastors and our community. And it's a plan that I've committed to pray that I do every single morning. I, I get up, I read the word, I open prayer mate, and I pray through these sets of cards. But it doesn't matter what the plan is. It doesn't matter what the plan is. Make a plan to pray and stick to it. Maybe it's in the car on the way to work. You turn off the radio and you pray. Maybe it's walking the dog around the neighborhood every morning. doesn't matter what the plan is, but make a plan to commit to pray and, and stick to it. And here's the beauty of a committed plan. It seems a bit mechanical. It seems a bit legalistic or ritual at first. But here's what I've found as I've stuck to my plan. Joy starts to grow. I find myself praying throughout the day beyond my committed plan, communing with the Lord as I have lunch and as I go for a walk and as I study. So give yourself to prayer and know that you're communing with a just, compassionate God who's the opposite of this unjust judge we just read about. The second way Jesus has encouraged us to persevere is by reminding us The one we pray to justifies us. He justifies us. He's the just, compassionate God, but he's also the justifier. So as Jesus wants to help his disciples persevere, he tells them another parable. And similar to the first one, this second parable has two characters. Two men with two very different lives, two very different experiences, and as we're going to see, two very different outcomes. It says these two men go to the temple. We get a glimpse of the Pharisee first 
He's an upright man by every measure. First, we see he's morally upright. Look at verse 11. He's not an extortioner. That means he's not a thief or a crook. He's not unjust, and he's not an adulterer. He's a morally upright man. He's, he's morally righteous. The Pharisee is also religiously upright. Look at verse 12. He fasts regularly, and he also tithes all that he has. This is a devout man. He's religiously upright. And finally, the Pharisee desires to honor God. He believes that God has given him this righteousness. Notice in verse 11, the Pharisee says, God, I thank you. He believes his righteousness is because of God. So by every measure, the Pharisee was a godly man, morally and religiously upright, desiring to honor God. And then we see the tax collector. All we know about him is that he's a sinner. Look at verse 13. All he could pray, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We don't know how or what this sin was. We can imagine as a tax collector, he probably took advantage of his fellow countrymen, hated as he collected taxes on behalf of Rome, and there was probably other maybe worse things. But we know from his own self-admission, he's a sinner. Two very different characters. On the surface, one godly and one a sinner. And as we read the parable, we see two very different outcomes too. The tax collector, it says, look at verse 14. Left the temple and went down to his house justified. He was made right before God. He received the mercy that he had prayed for. And what about the Pharisee? Well, he was not justified. Verse 14 again says, I tell you this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, rather than the Pharisee. The Pharisee did not leave justified. He was not made right before God. But what do we make of his righteousness? He was an upright man. So why was the tax collector justified and this morally religious upright man was not? Look at verse 9. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves they were righteous. They trusted in themselves they were righteous. The reason and the sole reason that the tax collector was justified and not the Pharisee was based on who each put their trust in. The Pharisee trusted in his righteousness, not the giver of his righteousness. That means he placed all his hope and trust and value in the fact that he was righteous. And the, 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 the faith that he had was in how upright he was, not in God. The Pharisee was unable to justify himself, and he was not putting his hope and trust in the right thing. God, the justifier. As readers of the New Testament, on this side of the cross, we have the privilege of reading the Bible backwards, don't we? 
We know the end from the beginning. And it's a great benefit to us because we know how the story ends. And it helps us interpret as we read the pages of Scripture what's happening. And so we read the pages of the Gospel of Luke, even here in chapter 18, knowing that Jesus Christ came not to condemn the world, but to save it. That he came to justify or pardon sinners through his perfect life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And the rest of the New Testament teaches what this parable highlights, that we are not saved or forgiven of our sin based on our good works, but we are saved apart from the law. That means according to the grace of God found in the substitutionary, sacrificial death of Jesus received by faith alone. So though the tax collector didn't know the end, he recognized, or, or we can at least interpret it as we read the Bible backwards, that he was saved from the penalty of his sin, that he was justified by trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on his behalf. Friends, that means that if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to hear something very clearly today. The world tells us that we just need to be good people, that we just need to do the right thing and be kind. And at the end of the day, if our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, when we die, everything will work out okay. But hear me with the most gentle care I can offer. There's nothing further from the truth than that. The Bible teaches that every single one of us has fallen short of the glorious standard of God. And in our sin, we deserve the just, that is the fair wrath of God. But in his love, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, offered himself for us. And so if you haven't received that gift by faith, I would encourage you to echo the prayer of the tax collector this morning. Recognize your own sin and ask for God's mercy. And he's just, and he's the justifier, and he's gracious, and he's compassionate, and he will answer that prayer in the affirmative, and he will justify you. He will pardon you of your sin and adopt you as a son or daughter. But here was the issue for the Pharisee. And I think it's a good warning for us as Christians as well. As we wait for the coming of Jesus' full and final kingdom, we have this good desire to not be of the world, to not cave to the immorality that we see all around us, to not be swept away by the evils all around us. And so we give ourselves to righteousness, which is a very good thing. But the danger comes as we wait and we try to endure and we try to keep persevering. And the kingdom of God seems distant and its arrival seems like it will never happen. All of a sudden, rather than persisting in dependent prayer like the first parable encourages, we begin to depend on our own righteousness. And I think we do this because it's tangible. It's something we can measure. 
It's something that we can be in control of. And over time, things begin to morph, and, and it happens slowly, and it happens quietly. But little by little, we care more about how good we are compared to the world than we do about how we actually relate to Jesus and live for him. Our main concern becomes being far more righteous than the sinful world around me. And I begin to, as Jesus warns in verse 9, treat others with contempt. Now again, I think this kind of thing happens subtly. I think it's hard to notice, especially in ourselves. But I think it's important in light of this parable from Jesus to examine our own hearts and see if there's evidence of this pharisaical arrogance, this trusting in our own righteousness more than trusting in Jesus. And so I think it'd be right to ask ourselves this morning, who around us do we treat with contempt? Who around us are we comparing our righteousness to? Who, like the Pharisee, are we thanking God we're not like? Jesus recognizes that as we wait for his full and final rescue, we will be tempted to trust in our own righteousness. And it breeds this arrogance and pride, and it causes our hearts to turn inwards, away from others. And so in his sweet grace and kindness, he offers this parable to us to encourage us to persevere and not drift, and at the same time, to warn us. Look at the end of verse 14. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, any righteousness in us that's not wrought by the Spirit of God, that's not met with the grace of Jesus, that's not submitted to his friendly kingship, any righteousness like that breeds self-exaltation. As good as our righteousness is, if it's not kept in prayerful, humble gratitude and dependence in Christ, we become self-exalting, and Jesus promises us we will be humbled. And that's a terrifying thought. And so how can we be sure that we do not exalt ourselves? Look back at the tax collector. The remedy to trusting in our own righteousness is a deep, lasting humility. Church family, as we wait for Jesus to consummate his full and final kingdom, as, as we do so in a world that continues to spiral more and more out of control, more and more away from God, may we humbly recognize that apart from the grace and mercy of Jesus, so would we. Apart from the grace and mercy of Jesus, every one of us would be as sinful as anything that we might recognize in our culture. The tax collector did not need to look outside himself to see sin, and neither do we. Our sin might not look the same as we see out there, but the nearer to Christ we grow, the more visible all sin becomes. So may we grow in our gratitude and humility before the just 
compassionate, justifying Jesus. In Luke 17, the chapter right before this one, the disciples had just received news that the kingdom of God would be altogether different than they had supposed, both in its meaning, but also in its timing. And Jesus offered to them encouragement and warning in two parables to persevere the wait, to operate as citizens of this already but not yet kingdom. And now Luke turns his attention to an interaction between the disciples, Jesus, and a group of children. And we have to remember, Luke, more than any other gospel writer, collected the content of his gospels less in chronological themes and more in in thematic themes. And so here he draws our mind to this idea of how we receive the kingdom as if summarizing all Jesus just taught in these two parables by comparing the characters of these parables to children. And so let's remember, Jesus is encouraging us to persevere today. First, by persisting in prayer to a God who is just and compassionate. Second, by knowing that we pray to a God who justifies us. And now lastly, by understanding that God's kingdom belongs to those who receive it like a child. Look with me at verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So we have here this shift in scene where it says people were bringing their children to Jesus to lay his hands on them, presumably to bless them. This was a common practice in the first century. Jews would bring their children to prominent rabbis to be blessed by them. But in the midst of the parents' requests, it says the disciples rebuked them. They try and stop them from getting to Jesus. And Luke doesn't expand on why, but we can presume the disciples are trying to protect Jesus, maybe because they don't want him to be overworked, maybe because they think he's above working with children. We don't know, but we do know how Jesus felt about it. It says he called the disciples to himself and said, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Think of the two parables we just read this morning and the characters that were represented. Each had a character that we saw represented members of God's kingdom. The persistent widow who was needy, poor, and dependent. The tax collector who was humble and lowly before God in the temple. So Luke is trying to draw our attention to what marks true kingdom citizens, isn't he? It's like those who act as children, who are completely dependent on help from outside themselves. It's those who, like children, have no sense of posturing or grandstanding, who are real, vulnerable, and humble. Think about a child's demeanor with me for a moment. Children have this natural curiosity, don't they? They're by nature inquisitive and accepting of truth. It's not until they get older and more learned that they become more skeptical and cynical like us adults. Children have a natural humility that keeps them from trying to impress those around them. 
They're aware of who they are, and they don't let that affect how they interact with those around them. Have you ever watched kids play all by themselves apart from any adult influence? I remember when my boys were young and they'd be at the park, I would just watch kids sometimes. It's so awkward, right? They're just accepting of each other. They, they tell each other everything. They tell them about how they fail. They tell them about how they pick their nose. They tell each other what they had for breakfast that morning as if anybody cares. But they do all that because they're not trying to impress anyone. They're being completely, truly themselves. And Jesus is saying that's what belonging to the kingdom is like. Jesus wants your true, honest, transparent self. Warts and sin, maybe even picking your nose and all. We don't have to posture or cast ourselves in a light that we think is impressive. We need to be like kids on a playground, real and genuine. I remember seeing this picture in the news a number of years ago from when President Obama was in office. He was out in the public at some event, and there was security all around him. People were standing watching him, and the picture showed this little kid who pressed through the crowd, got past security, and was tugging on the president's pant leg. Can you imagine if that was an adult? We can't. Number one, we'd be in a chokehold on the ground because of Secret Service, right? But we can't imagine that either because we're not a kid. We're not enthralled by the grandeur of the president like a small child would be. We'd look silly if we tried to make our way to the president. We have an image to uphold. We think about the consequences and, and what people would think of us. But as I reflect on that picture, it's always reminding me of what Jesus is describing here in Luke 18. That little kid didn't care about what anyone else thought. They didn't think about what the president might say, that they might be rejected. I imagine all they had in their mind was, I've heard really good things about the president, and I want to meet him. I want to go see him. Jesus says that kind of childlike demeanor is who the kingdom belongs to. And then notice the last thing Jesus says in verse 17. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The kingdom is something we receive. It's not something we pursue. It's not something we build. It's not something we earn or buy or manage. The kingdom of God is something we receive like a child. This is really important for us to grasp as we consider how to persevere in this life. If the kingdom of God is Jesus' rule and reign over the universe, then all we can do to partake is receive it like a child. A child receives the kingdom of God with humility. They don't come in with a list of preconceived notions like we often do. In fact, that freedom of preconceived notions is what we adults need to receive the kingdom of God. We need to come to Jesus as if we know nothing except what he offers us in himself. A child receives the kingdom of God free from self-righteousness. They don't come to Jesus with a list of all they've done for him. They don't have in their memory their church attendance, their tithing statements, or 
how many times they've served the needy. They come needy themselves of all that Jesus has to give. We're called to receive the kingdom like little children with hearts and hands that resemble the line of this old hymn. In my hand, no price I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. This is Jesus' invitation to us this morning, friends. At the cross, the king has given all we need to receive the kingdom of God. And we receive it like little children. And we persevere as citizens of the already and not yet by persistent dependence on his just compassion and by recognizing that through his finished work, he is the justifier of those who are his. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you have sent King Jesus to us. And I pray that we would receive him and his kingdom like children. Help us be humble. Help us be grateful. And help us persist in prayer as we commune with you. The one who knows us, the one who cares about us, and the one who longs for us to persevere. We thank you for your word this morning. Would it do deep things in our hearts for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.